Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. At Christmas time, when I was 11 years old, my family got its first computer, an Atari 800XL 8-bit unit my grandparents bought for us at Sears. It came with a five and a quarter inch floppy drive, a CRT monitor, and a dot matrix printer. Early on, the only game we had to play was an early version of Microsoft Flight Simulator, and I spent hours trying to fly from LaGuardia to O'Hare, keeping an eye out for line-drawing renditions of famous landmarks along the way. Later, I would use the computer to print out homework. I'd learn rudimentary programming from magazines to design my own primitive video games. I was entering the future one keystroke at a time. To fast forward a few decades is to see just how far that future has come. The device I carry in my pocket throughout the day now has 67 million times more random access memory than that old Atari computer. The variety and power of functions I can run on my phone on a moment's notice would have been awe-inspiring to 11-year-old me. I video call distant friends and relatives. I can search several dozen libraries worth of information with ease and immediacy. These changes were gradual, of course. In the transformation of my life from those analog early days to the digital everyday I inhabit now came in so many steps that I stopped being closely aware of how profound the revolutions I've walked through are. I'm attached to my phone to the point of being a veritable cyborg, dependent on its circuitry to remember a historical fact when my mind has gone blank in conversation, or leaning on its GPS when I'm driving somewhere unfamiliar and have lost my way. I've adopted a new set of behaviors that would have confused the old me, flicking through a frenzied catalog of news headlines, random observations, shared links, and often outright vitriol on Twitter over my morning coffee. Frequently, I have to tell myself to pause and consider the potential fallout when I encounter something I find really disagreeable there, and I'm tempted to fling an angry 140-character rejoinder back into the ether. On today's show, we wrap up our semester-long visit with the Humanities Center's 2020-2021 Alumni College Fellows by concluding our ongoing series, New Perspectives On. For this, our season finale... The topic is New Perspectives on Everyday Life. We'll hear about the history and cultural politics of singing automatic teller machines, the relationship between taste, popular belief, and how we process scientific information, and finally, why it's okay to mind your own business. All of this after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanity Center at Texas Tech? 
Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. First up on the show today is Heather Warren Crow, media theorist, performance artist, and associate professor of interdisciplinary arts. Heather is here to tell us of the history of singing ATMs and discuss why it's important to think through the peculiarities of that technological past. Hello, I'm Dr. Heather Warren Crow, associate professor of interdisciplinary arts in the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. I'm also director of our fine arts doctoral program here at Texas Tech. So, let me begin my segment of this podcast with an imagination game. It's the bodacious early 80s. You want to go out with friends after work, but banks are closed and you've run out of cash. If you lived in Washington, D.C., you'd drop by Dolly. In Philly, you'd check out George. In Chicago, you could drive to Ernestine the Cash Machine. In New Haven, Connecticut, you'd go to Barney or Tabby, a totally cute cat. If you lived in Liberty, Missouri, well, there's the Liberty Bell Teller and her easy-touch banking. And that's Bell with an E. In other places, there's Tallulah, Buttons, Ginny, Pat, Buddy, Miss X, Harvey Wallbanker, and the ominously named It in Los Angeles. There's Mary Ann throughout Florida, check out her billboards, and Annie and Tammy in Tennessee. And if you lived in our own Lubbock, Texas, you go to Tilly the All-Time Teller, insert your Tilly card, type in a four-character password, and make your withdrawal. In the early years of ATMs, or automated teller machines, many banks personified the technology to put a friendly face on an unfamiliar and potentially scary interaction. Although my research has turned up roughly equal numbers of masculine and feminine names, with feminine at a slight lead, the ATM character with the strongest presence across the country is Lubbock's own Tilly the All-Time Teller. History books associate Tilly solely with Georgia, but I found newspaper references to Tilly's located in West Texas, of course, as well as Alabama, Nebraska, Montana, Missouri, and Florida. This suggests that Tilly's original owners, First National Bank of Atlanta, did indeed sell the marketing plan for the Tilly All-Time System to other banks, as the bank's vice president and director of marketing proposes as a possibility in 1974. While many banks struggled to make ATMs profitable, First National Bank of Atlanta's Tilly campaign is given credit for their ATM success. Tilly was both the most common ATM persona in America and a model for banks across the country concerned about justifying their considerable capital investment. A widely reprinted New York Times article from 1976 opens with a description of our heroine. She looms over Atlanta on a hundred billboards, pink-cheeked, flaxen-tressed, china-blue eyes wide and smiling, 
halfway between a Cupid doll and chorus girl. Wind her up and she gives you money. I'm just going to let that sit there for now. My research for the Humanities Center is on the marketing of these personified and often starkly gendered devices. ATM characters were animated through print ads, billboards, radio spots, TV commercials, live demos at branches by costumed performers, newspaper articles, and branding on cards, envelopes, and the machines themselves. I'm interested in this phenomenon because it tells a story of how the public engaged with networked technology before the World Wide Web. While it seems like an obvious choice to anthropomorphize the machine as a simple attempt to normalize the experience by replacing the human teller lost through automation, industry magazines indicate the greater complexity of this gesture. Banks introduced ATMs as the face of the broader electronic funds transfer system, which also includes things like payroll direct deposit and touchtone telephone banking. The ATM was adopted in large part to establish a bank of card users for future developments in electronic funds and to train the public to accept an electronic system in an industry that relies so much on customers' squishy feelings of trust. Prior to the introduction of the ATM, the broad public would have had little to no awareness of online networks used behind the scenes in banking in the 1960s and 1970s. With the emergence of unmanned 24-hour teller services outside of the physical space of the bank and perhaps far from any branch, the paradigm shift would have been difficult to avoid. Robot banking, as newspapers called it, was not just the automation of teller service. It was also not just the shifting of teller labor onto the customer herself, although that is important. Robot banking was more than that. As Banking Magazine explains in 1977, online teller terminals combined data processing and communications, necessitating what the author implies is a relatively new term, information resources. The ATM turned customer financial transactions into data, processed them as a resource, and communicated them day and night through all-time systems. Computers are talking to computers right now, the article brags, invoking what we usually consider to be the human gift of gab to explain the idea of online tellers. This idea is more than a metaphor given the use of telephone lines for networked communication and the integration of the touchtone telephone keypad into the machines. In other words, mechanical PALS, as one newspaper dubs the ATM, functioned as an interface for integrating customers into a communication network. They literally put the face in interface, a smiling Cupid doll in the case of Tilly, a blonde in a Scottish tam shanter hat in the case of Tammy. The Tilly and Tammy campaigns relied on the face of the very young white woman as the quintessential technologized service agent since the early days of the Bell system in its notoriously racist and ageist hiring practices for switchboard operators. The smiling face of the ATM also had a voice. This voice with a smile was heard through radio and television advertising. It is this voice that primarily concerns me today. In fact, this Humanities Center-funded research is actually part of a book I'm writing on the voice. I'm interested in what I call vocational aesthetics, which means the aesthetics of vocal labor. I'm doing research on how voices are put to work, especially on how our communicative capacity becomes a form of technologized labor. 
Let's take a listen to a TV spot for Tammy the Timeless Teller of Third National Bank of Nashville. In this commercial, the smiling young woman moves through various Nashville locations, finally striking a pose in front of an ATM bearing her name. The visuals suggest that the ATM is appropriate for the mobility of Nashville's urban dwellers of the late 1970s. Or rather, the ATM is both modern and classic, that is, timeless, in a play on words that invokes the trustworthiness of banks in their traditional form, as well as the network's 24-7 work schedule. I'm Tammy, the timeless teller. I've always got time for you. I work every hour, every day of the year. Weekends and holidays, too. Treat your money oh so well With every service everybody knows so well I'm Tammy, the timeless teller The voice you just heard is from 29-year-old Janie Frick. Frick's vocals were lip-synced by her younger doppelganger, Chrissa Jennings, a 21-year-old college senior and former Miss Congeniality. This jingle manages to be both energetic, with blasts of brass instruments, and leisurely in tempo, emphasizing Tammy's unending capacity for service work as well as the ease of using the devices. I want to play you another commercial. This one is for Florida's all-day, all-night Marianne. Yes, that was the full name of the ATM, and yes, it was controversial. The premise of this commercial is that the unintentionally creepy man you hear is on a date with the ATM. Your song, my dear, a tribute to your... Abilities. You're always there. Paying my bills, giving me cash when I need it. Ah, you even feed me well, Marianne. She'll take care of you, too. During demonstration hours, have dinner on the Colonel when you use landmark banks all day, all night, Marianne. Your song, as he calls it, is a schmaltzy solo violin arrangement of the melody of Marianne. Originally a calypso song composed by Trinidadian performer Roaring Lion and covered by artists such as Harry Belafonte and the 1950s pop group The Hilltoppers. Marianne's capacity for endless labor is explicitly configured here as tireless sexual energy and availability, all day, all night, and the customer's interaction with the machine is one of romantic foreplay. Our own Tilly in Lubbock got a less suggestive celebration of her skills. In the commercial, an office full of bankers and tellers sit at a long table and sing For She's a Jolly Good Fellow in honor of her birthday. At the end of the song, Tilly opens her bill slot and gamely blows out the candles on her cake. Miss Congeniality, indeed. When taken collectively, these commercials for personified ATMs did two things. First, they attuned the public to the time of the electronic funds transfer system. Timeless time, all the time, always ready to put the service in server with a beat we could tap out to infinity. Second, they modeled the consumer's desired affective approach to this network, one of love or at least jolly friendship communicated through sound. The voice of the original Tilly in Atlanta was a young and jaunty Susan Bennett, who decades later was the voice of the original Siri. This historical fact connects Tilly to another feminized employee who lives in timeless time is happy to serve, and eager to use your information as a resource. The other day, my five-year-old kid asked me if Siri was a robot. No, I said, not really. She's the voice of a network. I'm Tilly, the all-time teller. 
I work for First National Bank. I'll make your life easier. I'm one more good reason for banking with First National Bank. When you need checks, cash, come and see me. Thanks, Heather. Next up is Scott Whedon, Assistant Professor of Technical Communication and Rhetoric in the Department of English. Among the many topics that Scott researches is the rhetoric of science, technology, and medicine. In his recent work, he's thinking through the relationship between popular beliefs about science and their public expression, as he tells us in detail here. Hello, my name is Scott Whedon, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of English at Texas Tech University. My work is in science and technical communication, and that means I look at the impact language has for conceptualizing and disseminating knowledge of science, health, and technology. As the last 18 months of the COVID-19 crisis has demonstrated for us, the way science is expressed in language matters a lot. For instance, when people analogize the coronavirus as similar to the flu, that has major consequences for how the virus is viewed. When some people describe mask wearing as a common sense measure and others describe it as an infringement on civil liberties, they are collecting around specific ways of conceptualizing a response to the virus. This is more than a mere choice of words. It is a way of conceiving of reality. Think about one of the more pervasive ways the response to the coronavirus has been conceptualized. Presidents Biden and Trump have cast the nation's struggle against the coronavirus as a war. Trump called himself a wartime president as COVID-19 began to sweep across the United States. Biden announced that the country was on a war footing in a major address on COVID-19. The talk of health and other types of crises in terms of war is to make use of a metaphor, one that writer Susan Sontag and many others have found to be all too ready to hand in contemporary discourse. Over the last 40 years, we have had wars on poverty, drugs, AIDS, terror, breast cancer, and now COVID-19. Scholars of science communication insist that thinking about a crisis through the lens of war structures the way that crisis is approached. There are front lines and casualties. There are heroes and enemies. Responses and reactions to the problems are fights and struggles. And to succumb to the crisis is to lose a battle. The war metaphor is thought to be effective for the way it promotes collective action and sacrifice from a nation's citizens. But it has costs as well. When healthcare professionals become soldiers on the front line against COVID-19, there attends an expectation of their sacrifice for their patients analogous to a soldier's sacrifice for their country. However, healthcare workers are not soldiers and they did not join the field to take on that role. Yet the metaphor of war enrolls them in that position and their deaths are simply casualties of war. Language, or more specifically rhetoric, matters to the role and uptake of science, medicine, and technology in society. But language doesn't only convey understanding of science, it conveys feelings and values about science as well. And it's not only language that shapes understanding, feeling, and values of science. Visuals and other types of media genres affect the way people relate to science too. My current research investigates the modes of relating to science apart from the modes of understanding politics, though those are, of course, very important. I am interested in how people engage science and look at what parts, taste, and lifestyle play in that engagement. Science and medicine and technology often have an aesthetic appeal. One can think of the wonder inspired by ingenious experiments, the sublimity of the age and expanse of the universe demonstrated by models or mathematics, the beauty of a botanist's illustration of a rose petal. These things lead me to seek to understand what role aesthetics and affect plays in scientific belief. And I focus on belief, uh, not in just in regular science, but in pseudo or alternative science. 
I believe that attention to this aspect of belief in science can help science communicators understand what it takes to get people to engage with good science. I have tackled this topic in a few different studies, and here I highlight a case study looking at the NBA star Kyrie Irving's belief in a flat Earth. Uh, this work is published in the 2020 IEEE Proceedings of the Professional Communication Society. Uh, it's an early and ongoing uh, study, but it looks at Irving, specifically uh, his making of headlines in 2017 for his belief in flat earthism, a belief that conceives the Earth is not round, but flat. The idea that the Earth is flat is perpetuated by a conspiracy-oriented community that circulates images and videos purportedly showing the Earth's flatness, and in some cases performing empirical experiments seemingly disproving the Earth's roundness. Irving maintained his belief to interviewers for 18 months, but he eventually confessed he no longer believed in a flat Earth and that his past belief was a result of falling down, quote, a YouTube rabbit hole. His story is a seemingly familiar one. An apparently gullible person comes across nonsense on the internet, after re repeated exposure to nonsense, starts to believe in nonsense. But as I'm about to discuss, if we pay attention to how Irving frames his beliefs, we start to see that coming to believe in pseudoscience is more complex. The element of taste is a major factor for Irving, and that factor often goes unaccounted for in analyses of pseudoscience belief. While research has uncovered the many ways pseudoscience conspiracy theories and science skepticism takes root in people, less attention has been paid to how these perspectives are taken up as a matter of lifestyle. Popular wellness and fitness purveyors such as Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop and Tom Brady's TB12 make dubious science an integral part of their branding. Instagram influencers promote all manner of supplements and diets acting the part of lab subjects. Attitude, fashion, celebrity, consumerism, and aesthetics are entangled with, an ex with our exposure to and uptake of science and pseudoscience. Science communication must seek new ways to account for this atmosphere and explore how uptake of belief in science is connected to lifestyle, how believing in science or pseudoscience may also be a matter of taste. The Irving controversy provides a perspicuous case to illustrate how lifestyle and taste factor into belief in pseudoscience. Evident in several interviews where Irving is asked to justify his beliefs, I note that when explaining his adherence to flat earthism, Irving stresses how the belief was part of a journey he was on to open his mind. In interviews, he expressed his need to use the internet to test accepted truths in order to move forward to becoming, quote, a complete individual. He also stresses the joy from contemplating pseudoscience and people's reactions to it. For Irving, believing in pseudoscience is part of a willingness to be adventurous with taboo topics. The picture painted by Irving is not of an individual in the thrall of a deceiving internet or suffering from some kind of pathology, but someone cultivating a self through tests of pleasure. How might we conceptualize this facet of Irving's self-justification? I turn to the French sociologist Antoine Agnon's Pragmatics of Taste to better capture the complexity of Irving's pseudoscience belief. Agnon is helpful here because he focuses on the processes by which people begin to develop a taste for an object or activity, how they become attached. And Jan excuse a critical approach that would read Irving as a sort of cultural dope and instead seeks to understand the reflexive activity of how a self is turned into a subject of taste. And Jan pays attention to how people become amateurs, sincere enthusiasts who develop perspectives and knowledge of objects of taste through tests of those objects. And Jan provides example of rock climbers who on their ascent of a rock face are not simply heading towards a goal learning to take pleasure in the act, and through the act, making the object of taste more apparent as their interaction with the object, in this case, finding safe places to hold onto the rock, uh, brings to be new facets of that object. 
And Jan argues that through an amateur's activity, the subject of taste and the object of taste are reflexively fashioned. It is this dynamic that I believe can helpfully illuminate the Irving case and others like it. Irving describes flat eartherism in the context of his striving to re-examine his life through new activities, such as learning about mystical concepts and taboo knowledge. The journey leading him to flat eartherism begins with a quest for new knowledge that takes into question a basic assumption about the world. Through the mediation of the internet, Irving tests his capacity for new knowledge and even learns to find pleasure when it is challenged. The internet immediately provides him with a glut of information on the topic, as well as a waiting community with which to harmonize his developing judgment. His belief in pseudoscience, then, is an activity that is initially motivated by general personal goals, but through experimentation, this belief is cultivated as a component of a lifestyle. The point to stress here is that belief in pseudoscience is a reflexive activity, not reducible to only reasoning, political beliefs, or ethnic histories, though it's certainly not exclusive to those things either. Instead, belief in pseudoscience can be taken up as a mediator of a lifestyle, which in turn provides the lifestyle with pleasure. The preliminary case study suggests that pseudoscience belief may intersect with taste-making and self-fashioning. This conclusion matters because it provides science communication teachers and researchers with another reason to combat a deficit model of scientific knowledge. The deficit model assumes that the failure to adhere to and abide by scientific guidance is due to a lack of knowledge. While it's certainly the case that Urban is mistaken, he actually has a surfeit of scientific knowledge, just of the wrong kind. What motivates his pursuit of this knowledge is its aesthetic appeal, developed as part of a larger self-fashioning project. This is yet another component that the deficit model does not account for. Taste is an under-examined aspect of how people engage with science, and as I have argued here, deserves more attention. I suggest that science communicators think explicitly of ways to cultivate an aesthetic appreciation of science and integrate it into an understanding of scientific knowledge. Thank you very much. Finally, to wrap up today's show, we have Justin Tosi, an assistant professor of philosophy who specializes in social, political, moral, and legal philosophy. In his upcoming book, Justin weighs the balance between tolerating individual ideals we might find offensive and the urge to make the world a better place by intervening when we perceive wrongdoing. As the title of Justin's project suggests, it might be just fine for each of us to mind our own business. Here's Justin to explain. Hello, I'm Dr. Justin Tosi, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Texas Tech University. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my book in progress called Why It's Okay to Mind Your Own Business, which will be published uh, with Rutledge, uh, in, in which I'm writing with my co-author, Brandon Warmke of Bowling Green State University. Here's the general idea. Our culture celebrates people who take a very ambitious approach to life. So if you look at really high-minded commencement speeches where we're kind of most optimistic about, uh, about telling people what a good life should look like for them. You'll see, you know, speakers saying things like, get out there and, and get noticed, make a big impact on the world. Um, you are the generation, you know, that, that will change the world and, and clean up uh, the mess that, that my generation made. Um, or, you know, all of you should be trying to solve society's biggest problems. What 
the speakers don't say is stuff like, don't pay attention to the news. Uh, there's really not much you can do anyway. Uh, stay out of politics. It's a toxic mess. You should just ignore it. Um, what you should really be doing with your life is getting a steady job and supporting your family. Uh, or don't worry about problems halfway around the world. Uh, instead, devote your, yourself to helping your neighbors uh, and your friends and your local community. But I think that the things that, that these commencement speakers don't say, so these latter set of things, is much better advice. So our view isn't that it is wrong to try to change the world. Um, but what we want to say is that it's not the only way to live a good life. Uh, and for most people, it's really not a good way to live. So the main message of the book is that if you live a life where you just mind your own business, you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. You'll probably be more successful at it and you'll be happier. And we should admit that a good life can take diverse forms and, and often it won't involve trying to solve big problems uh, or worrying about international affairs. The first part of the book is about the pitfalls of, of going too big uh, and minding others' business. Uh, so one of these pitfalls is what we call moralizing. This is being too aggressive about pushing your moral views or standards on other people. Some obvious examples of this are, are uh, you know, the campus preachers who scream about hellfire and call women whores for wearing shorts or things like that. Uh, or, you know, alternatively, uh, you know, the woman who stops you on, on the street uh, in, in a city to bother you about signing some petition and just won't leave you alone. She's got to get through her whole like half hour sales pitch. Um, so in general, moralizers tend to be like salesmen who refuse to stop pitching. Uh, and one way or another, moralizers are overstepping um, important boundaries when they demand that other people live by their moral code uh, or blame them for, for not doing so. The main problem that, that we have with moralizing is uh, that it generally involves making inappropriate demands on others. Sometimes you know, these are, are things like just demanding that, that someone uh, behave uh, according to your own idiosyncratic standards. Um, so, you know, what, why should anyone else care that you, know, you privately have just decided that people who donate less than 5% of their income to charity are, are, are bad people? Um, that's, that's arbitrary. Uh, you might think that's a good standard for yourself, but, but why, why apply it to everybody else? Uh, or, you know, alternatively, um, moralizers sometimes demand that other people do things that are actually good, like, you know, doing unpaid service work for a year, or, you know, Teach for America or Peace Corps or something like that. Um, those are good things, but they're not actually morally obligatory. Um, those are really strong demands to issue on, on other people. Um, but moralizers think like, well, I mean, it's good and, and morality says we should do it. So, of course, I, I should be allowed to tell other people uh, what morality requires of them. Uh, but we think it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Morality doesn't work that way. Uh, another problem uh, that comes with minding others' business uh, is that it often involves being a busybody, um, you know, trying to help too much, living by the idea that uh, if, if I can help someone, uh, I will help them. 
The main problem with this kind of behavior is uh, that if you try to live this way, it's just too demanding. For one thing, there is too much to know and to think about in, in order to, to actually help other people effectively. You could spend all your time just trying to figure out what the problems are, who has them, what to do about them. Uh, it's just a, a lot to think and deliberate about. Uh, but more importantly, um, you know, even if you can figure out things that are, are good to do to help other people, uh, it's just too disruptive to a normal life to to devote yourself to, to helping anyone that you can. Uh, there are just too many people with too many problems. And if you focus only on addressing them, you'll have nothing left for you. And that's not a good life. We also offer a general diagnosis of, of what's wrong with, with thinking like these, you know, commencement speakers and, and, uh, and thinking, you know, good life's all, all about, you know, um, just helping other people on, and tackling these big problems. And that's the, I think we overrate, uh, the idea of meaning well. So people often take good intentions or, or, you know, um, people who care, they take this to be the missing ingredient for solving big social problems or, or achieving uh, important goals. But this is just a mistake. Uh, you know, the source of, of socialism is not that uh, that not enough people care about helping others or, or that the people in charge are, are corrupt or selfish. Um, so it's not like we, we just need to get the good people in power or throw enough goodwill at a problem and, and it'll be resolved. Uh, because, of, of course, Many of the world's biggest problems aren't due to bad intentions. They're just really complicated. Uh, and meaning well isn't the missing ingredient, uh, as nice as it sounds. So we look at this two ways. So first is, is that just meaning well isn't sufficient. Uh, so it's really easy to, to find examples of, of failed policies or you know, initiatives or, or, or projects um, that were undertaken by people who certainly meant well, uh, but failed to do any good, or, or maybe even were, were counterproductive. Um, so in short, there are no bonus points just for throwing resources at, at a problem and, and meaning well. A lot of other things have to go right, too. Um, the other thing is that meaning well isn't necessary. So you know, a clear example here is that in the past 40 years, global poverty has decreased remarkably. So, you know, it went from 40% of people living in extreme poverty to now around 10%. Uh, and it's done so, social scientists say, primarily through economic development. So in other words, nobody was aiming specifically to help people, or, or at least they didn't need to be. They just needed to be trying to make money and, and seeking out opportunities to do this. And the result has been that a lot of people who would still be terribly poor are now better off. The second part of the book uh, talks more about why it's good to, to mind your own business. So by this, we just mean focusing mostly on what's right in front of you, caring for your friends and family, helping your elderly neighbor clean their gutters or whatever, contributing to your, your local communities, or just working on your own personal projects and interests. These things are widely regarded as, as not very exciting or sexy, like joining the Peace Corps or something like that but they are valid ingredients of a good life. So our general approach in this part of the book is just to say there are so many sources of value in life. There are so many things that make it worth living and good for the person who lives it. 
helping lots of people by pursuing big, impactful social projects is one good thing that you can do, but it's far from the only thing. You can live a great life mostly by minding your own business. One thing we talk about here is the value of solitude. So, of course, it is great to be around other people and a life without significant relationships would be a bad one for most of us. But it's also important to have some space for yourself to pull away from the distractions of of day-to-day life where it's so easy to lose sight of what's important and instead focus just on what's urgent. Uh, So if this is right, then it's just unavoidable that a good life has to involve some measure of minding your own business uh, and tuning the rest of the world out. And that brings us to the end of this season's final episode of Humanities Now. We're about to take a short break for the summer months, but we'll be back in September with many more conversations about humanities research here at Texas Tech. As always, my thanks to the Humanities Center staff, Justin Hughes and Callie Watson, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. Have a safe summer, and we'll see you again in the fall. <laughs>